I, I think it's easy to, to think of that in, in trite ways. Oh, we have a friend in, in Jesus. I can sit down with him and have a cup of coffee and a conversation in the morning. And that is true. But this Jesus whom we call a friend is the one from, from whose presence Adam and Eve were removed in the garden because of their sin. It is the one whom Moses had to be hid in the cleft of a rock from, from the weight of his glory. Uh, who, whom the disciples asked to, to pitch tents and stay forever in the presence of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And while it is true that he is our friend, we should never take that lightly. But We should marvel at the fact that, that we are Because of his death and resurrection and the adoption of our father, we are his friend and brother and even co-heir of everything he he earned at the cross. That's an amazing thought and we should never take it too lightly. Before we get into the book of Daniel, I want to share an announcement uh, with you and it's kind of, um, it's, it's, uh, it's coming upon us rather quickly, but uh, I've made mention of the fact that we're trying to, you know, as a church, look more outwards, think more towards uh, our community, and and uh, and kind of, you know, COVID and pastoral transitions and many things have left us dealing with much inside the church, and and uh, had a couple opportunities to go and. Um, and, and just meet with staff at the schools around here, and we've begun partnerships. I've got a pair of shoes sitting under the, the pew here, or the chair here, that uh, is going to go to a student in need. And so um, if you want to be able to, to help meet the needs of those in the community, certainly give to the Benevolence Fund. But we have another opportunity, and that is... Um, uh, Prospect Point, uh, they get bags from BMAC, Blue Mountain Action Council, to send home with kids who maybe aren't sure where their next meal comes from. And one of the things that we have said is we would like to be in the rotation that supplements that. Because what, what these kids take home for a weekend who may not know if they have food is one seven-ounce can of SpaghettiOs, one seven-ounce can of red beans and rice, two small apple chip packs, two applesauce squeeze packs, and then two packs, of crayon, uh, two packs of craisins and two boxes of 2% milk. Now, that's a wonderful gift that BMAC is supplying to these kids, but imagine it taking that home and, and thinking, this could be all I eat for the weekend. It's just not enough. And, uh, and so we have the opportunity to help supplement that on a rotating basis with some other organizations, the PTA, uh, as well as another church in town. And so every four weeks, uh, starting actually this week, so this is kind of an urgent need, we're going to help supplement uh, some of the food that these kids will take home. And so we've got a list up here. We'll, we'll help you. Actually, SpaghettiOs is not one of the things we need. In fact... Um, right at the boxed milk, that's where we stop, actually. Everything up from, bo- from boxed milk and up is already provided. 
They've asked us to help with uh, two packets of instant oatmeal per kid. Now, let me tell you, uh, there's about 30 kids. So we're looking uh, every four weeks at about 60 packets of instant oatmeal, uh, some bananas and apples or oranges. Um, I think we could maybe do both. Uh, Those are the things that we won't be able to store. Everything that's shelf-stable, we're going to have a storage for here so you can drop off anytime. But as we get to weeks like this week where we want to supply fresh things, uh, we'll need those dropped off the week of. Uh, Two granola bars, uh, one breakfast bar, a ramen noodle packet, and an individually wrapped cupcake or Twinkie of some kind. That's what they're asking Um, I think we might, you know, uh, be able to even do better, I don't know, particularly as pertains uh, maybe some fresh fruit and and veggies and things like that, but uh, we'll drop those off Thursday mornings on the weeks that we're partnering with them in this so that uh, especially the little kids can't carry it all home, so they need a couple days to be able to carry the, the food home, so... Uh, this week, we'll be providing that. So, uh, Allie, let's be sure to send out an email with a list this week so that people know uh, what it is we need, and we'll just be in community or in communication with you about that. Oh, and uh, apparently the last time we did this, we had a growth group cover it. Uh, we included a fruit snack pack and a box of yogurt-covered raisins, and so they appreciated uh, that as well. So, um, We'll, uh, we'll get an email out so you know that, and we'll, we'll be in contact with, or in, in communication uh, about when that's going to happen. Let's uh, turn our attention now to God's word and, and open our time here uh, in prayer as we're looking to Daniel chapter 2. Heavenly Father, we come now to your word and we ask uh, for your help. We ask for your help understanding it. We ask for your, your help obeying it. Uh, Lord, as we, as we look into you and your character, you are so far above us that, uh, that is, it is not without your help that we can understand you and what you have done for us. And so we express our dependence upon you and upon your spirit as we approach your word this morning. And so, Lord, give us, uh, give us open eyes to see what is in your word and to, to know uh, what is there and give us soft hearts to be willing to obey it. Lord, I pray for us as a church Lord, would you uh, just give us a deep love for the gathering? Lord, um, we confess that that in many ways and in many places and maybe in many of our lives, the the average 1.7 times a month attendance at church is, is true. Lord, would you help us to understand the sinfulness of that? To understand that it is neglect of your commands? Lord, would you help us to see that it is a ministry to each other to sing your praise? And Lord, I have been deeply ministered to this morning by your church. Would you help us to, to see that it is our gathering and our unity and our witness and our, and, our, and, our, and our worship, rather, that is a witness? And so would you, would you forgive us of neglect of your body at times? And, and would you uh, give us a deep love and desire to be together, to gather, to sing your praise, to hear your word? Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters at Indian Trail Church this morning. We thank you that, uh, that they have a heart for other churches, that they commit both budget and staff to serving other churches. And we thank you that, um, that we have been served well by that church this morning as they have loaned Bob to us. We're thankful for his ministry to us as well. Father, we think of our search for 
a, a worship leader, Lord, would you bring the right person to us? I continue to pray that you would allow that position to grow into a, a full-time position, that we might be able to afford that and, 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 uh, and have somebody who's not only willing to lead us, but who is willing to, uh, to serve and to disciple and to, uh, to train up other leaders as well and to invest in the lives of people. Lord, we pray that, uh, that whoever is preaching, likely Kyle at Indian Trail, would also be faithful to your word, would be clear on the gospel. Would you do the same thing here among us? And Lord, whether, uh, whether it be there or here, Lord, if there are any unbelievers present, would you, would you help us to, to hear the truth of your word and the, the greatness of what you've done for us? Lord, we pray for our missionaries in Japan, Bob and Teresa Reister. We thank you for the praises they've shared with us, for baptisms of grandchildren, for opportunities to see family at Christmas, uh, for, for the daily exercise class that Bob is able to participate in and even uses an opportunity for outreach. And we thank you for the baptism of Yoko and Ayano and the uh, the evangelism that they are already engaging in, Lord. Thank you for uh, the excitement of new believers who, who desire to speak the truth of the gospel to those who have not yet been saved. Lord, let us never lose that desire. Let us never lose that passion. Let us willingly speak the truth of the gospel to the world around us. Lord, we ask as, there's, as we had been praying for new workers and as there are new workers who want to come, Lord, we pray that you would open up uh, the country to be able to allow them to come in. Lord, we pray with them as they have asked that all of their family would seek you and delight themselves in you. We pray that you would give them wisdom as this Discovery Bible class expands and grows and, and as uh, a couple of other uh, people are being established and growing in the faith, Lord, we pray that, uh, that their discipleship would be... Um, just faithful to your word and, and empowered by your spirit. And Lord, as, uh, as, the, um, as the current discovery class grows, we thank you for that. And as they consider this, these other classes as well, Lord, we just pray that you'd give great uh, faithfulness and success to them. Lord, use the book of Daniel this morning in our lives to give us great certainty uh, in this world that we live in. We ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 2 of the book of Daniel opens very similarly to what we saw last week. We saw last week that Daniel opens with two separate crises, a, a national crisis. Uh, Judah, the country that he uh, lives in, uh, modern-day southern Israel, is taken over, defeated, and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That's the national crisis. And then there is personal crisis that goes along with that, whereby Daniel is selected to be taken to Babylon and to serve in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he gets a new education. He's forced to learn the language, to learn their history. Uh, everything about uh, Daniel's life is changing. Where he lives, the language he speaks... The history he knows, the job he has, all of it changes. But when it comes time to eat this food, we saw last week, he says, nope, that's it. That is the line. That is the line I cannot cross. And we saw last week, there, there's a couple different views on what it is about this food that made it something Daniel would not participate in. But either way, in whatever position you take on, on the nature of this food, it was simply in Daniel or by Daniel, seen as disobedience to God. And he said, I cannot go any further. And he calmly and peacefully 
proposes a solution to the problem, and God blesses his faithfulness. Well, today in chapter 2, we see a similar opening. There is a personal crisis, but this time it is Nebuchadnezzar's crisis. He's having dreams, probably more like nightmares, and they're haunting him, and he wants to know what they mean. There is also uh, some national crisis, uh, maybe not as widespread as in chapter 1, But he tells the wise men in in Babylon that they not only have to interpret his dream, but they have to know his dream. He's not going to tell them the dream. He's going to let them decipher what the dream is and what it means. Oh, and by the way, if you don't, you will die. This is not a good situation. For Daniel, there's also another degree of personal crisis when Daniel, seemingly entirely unaware of what's going on, has somebody show up to kill him. And the same level-headed, calm, faithful Daniel shows up here in chapter 2. Let's let's work our way through chapter 2. I'll stop and explain some things as we go. Largely, the story is self-explanatory, and then we'll look a little bit at how to live faithfully in a contrary culture. Daniel 2 says, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king said to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. Then the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream, that is, to know the meaning of the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. If you ever have to stand before a king, this is a wise thing to say. O king, live forever. Say the dream to your servants. And we will declare the interpretation. Tell us your dream and we will tell you what it means. (laughs) It's maybe a bad joke, but I kind of don't mean it as a joke. Uh, Charlatans who want to tell you everything about your life based upon dreams are not new. Then then verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream... And its interpretation. Not just the interpretation. He's not going to make known to them the dream. They have to make known the dream and its interpretation. You will be torn limb from limb. And your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great glory. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king say the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. Now, the king knows what's up here. He's on to their game. Verse 8, the king answered and said, I know for certain that you are buying time. Inasmuch as you have seen that the word from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one law for you. Indeed, you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the time is changed. Therefore, say the dream to me that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, 
There is not a man on earth who is able to declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or powerful ruler has ever asked about a matter like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the matter which the king asks is difficult, and there is no one who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with flesh. Now this right here is vital information for us to understand the book of, or Daniel chapter 2. What they're saying is a half-truth. It is a half-truth because there are not gods. But they get it right in that this is not a matter for mere mortals. Only God can, can see the thoughts and dreams and heart of the king. Only God can do what is being asked of the Chaldeans here. And in verses 12 and 13, we see they can't do it, and they're ordered to be killed. Verse 12, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and said for them to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the law went forth that the wise men were to be killed, and they sought out Daniel and his friends, that's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, a powerful official for the king, for what reason is the law from the king so urgent? Then, this is important, Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Daniel's not yet serving before Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't even know what's going on. He doesn't know what he's demanded. He doesn't know what's going on other than this man, Arioch, shows up at his house to kill him. And Daniel, with wisdom and discretion, discretion and discernment, begins to calmly ask questions. And then he does what we saw last week and proposes peaceful solutions. Now, put yourself in this situation. Somebody shows up at your house, having just been ordered by the king to kill you, what is your response? Mine is probably panic and terror and maybe even flight. But here Daniel, with prudence and discretion, it says, what's going on? So, verse 16, Daniel went in and sought from the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Daniel's got access to the king. He goes to the king and said, Lord, says to Nebuchadnezzar, probably something like, oh, king, live forever. That's a wise thing to say. Give us time to make this interpretation known. Now, here's one of the things that's really important for us in Daniel 2, is it would be easy to stop there and think, well, Daniel knew what God was going to do. But the next verses reveal to us that Daniel did not. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to his friends, to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so that they might seek compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed, or some translations might say might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Daniel proposes a calm solution to the king. But he's not calm because he knows what's going to happen. He's not calm because he knows that the dream is going to be made clear to him and he's not going to lose his life. 
Something else has to be going on here to give Daniel this kind of calm discernment and discretion in the face of such terror. Then, verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel does what all of us should do when God does something unexpected and undeserved, like let us live every day in his grace. He praises, he blesses the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and might belong to him. And the rest of this blessing is is, uh, fleshing out this idea that wisdom and might belong to God. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. We saw last week that the one certain thing, or maybe two weeks ago, the one certain thing in this life is not death nor taxes, but change. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers... I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. Even now you have made known to me what we sought from you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretations? Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery which the king is asking, neither wise men... Uh, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. This is probably not a safe answer. Are you able to declare to me the dream? No, no man is able. Daniel functionally just gives Nebuchadnezzar the same message that the other wise men and Chaldeans and sorcerers gave to the king. No man can do this, but Daniel doesn't stop there. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Not gods in heaven, a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the last days. This was your dream and the visions of your head while while on your bed. As for you, O king, While on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would happen in the future. Can anybody identify with that? Anybody wonder what the future might hold? And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will happen. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me by any wisdom which is in me more than in any other living man. Daniel is clear to tell Nebuchadnezzar, it is not my strength or wisdom or knowledge or might that is going to make this known to you. But for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. 
You, O king, here's the dream. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great image. That image was large and of extraordinary splendor, was rising up in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. It's this gigantic, awesome statue. The head of that image was made of fine gold, and its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut without human hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So there's this statue of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. And this stone, this gigantic stone, not cut from human hands, crushes it all, pulverizes the image into powder, it blows away, and then it fills the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will say it's interpretation before the king. You, this, is, this is gutsy, by the way. This is a gutsy message to the king. Listen to Daniel. Verse 37, you, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men inhabit, or the beast of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has made you rule with power over them all. You are the head of gold. Imagine the swelling pride in Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, I am the king. There is no nation that can stand before my might. I am the head of gold. But after you will rise another kingdom, inferior to you. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are going to be defeated by another kingdom. And if you remember from two weeks ago, we saw that by the end of Daniel, no longer is a Babylonian ruling this kingdom, but Darius a Mede, and then Cyrus, a Persian. But after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze. The the first inferior kingdom is that Medo-Persian empire. The next kingdom, the bronze kingdom, is Greece. And and later in the book, which we're not going to look at in these studies uh, or in this sermon series, is an amazing picture of history that unfolds exactly to the book of Daniel. And there's this third kingdom of bronze. This, This is Greece and Alexander the Great, which will rule with power over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. This is Rome. Inasmuch as it crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush And break all these in pieces. And the Roman Empire did just that. Now in that you saw the feet and toes. Partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron. Inasmuch as you saw iron mixed with common clay. I think this is the revised Roman Empire yet to be seen. It is foretold in Daniel and again in Revelation. At the end of days. 
And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine, verse 43, with one another in the seed of men, but they will not cling to one another, even as iron does not combine with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will stand forever. This is the kingdom of Christ. It conquers all kingdoms. It supersedes all kingdoms. It is an eternal kingdom. It is a stone that is not cut by human hands. It is a a kingdom that will crush all other kingdoms. And it is a kingdom that one day, after crushing this final kingdom, this revised Roman empire, will fill the whole world. Verse 43, and as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will happen in the future. So the dream is certain and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and said for them to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is a God of God, gods and a Lord of kings. I love this language. If Nebuchadnezzar is the king of kings, not like we use the term for Jesus in that he was a king who ruled over other kings, Yahweh is the Lord of kings. He is the God of gods and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him rule with power over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel sought of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, again, that's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. I love how Daniel is quick to make it known that it is not by his strength or his might or his power that any of this happens, but that it is only by God. I wonder if we give appropriate glory and credit to God for our successes. Do we understand that they are all the result of of his might? Well, here we see the events of Daniel chapter 2, a dream impending execution and interpretation and then success for Daniel. But I want us to see today, how do we live faithfully when in conflict with the world? Daniel's God, Daniel's form of worship throughout the book of Daniel are in conflict with the Babylonian culture. And not just his, but also Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their their unwillingness to worship any god but the Lord lands them in a fiery furnace. And the same lands Daniel in a lion's den. And here, for the same reason, uh, or or not just, not the same reason, but for another reason, his life is on the line. This culture is not a culture favorable to God's rule and to God's kingdom. So how do we live faithfully in a world where we have conflict. And if you're not feeling that tension, if you're not looking around and seeing that that there is conflict between what we believe and what we preach and what we declare and the world that we live in, then you're just not paying attention. Number one, 
We live faithfully when in conflict with the world by being secure in Jesus' kingdom. We, we be secure in Jesus' kingdom. Look with me at verses 34 and 35. You continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. We've already seen what Nebuchadnezzar's dream has revealed. And we've seen it for the last two weeks already, that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall as the sovereign God appoints. But Daniel knew, and we ought to know and be confident and secure in the fact that there is an eternal, unshakable kingdom. That no other kingdom can defeat, no other kingdom can crush, no other king can conquer its king. It is not a kingdom cut by human hands, meaning it is not a kingdom from earth. It is a kingdom set up by God. John 18, 36, Jesus answered and said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom, other than the church, uh, is in the world, but not the fullness of his kingdom. We're awaiting the fullness of his kingdom as we live here in this world. It is a kingdom that, that extends well past this world. It is not a temporal kingdom. It doesn't change. It doesn't rise and fall It is eternal. You can be a a citizen of an earthly kingdom for a lifetime, but of his kingdom, you can be a citizen for eternity. And it's not just an otherworldly kingdom, it's a completely upside-down kingdom. Notice what Jesus says in John 18, 36. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That's how earthly kingdoms are built. Kings conquer, kings kill, people die, they surrender, and a kingdom grows. But Christ's kingdom exists because he died so we don't have to. He conquered his kingdom by death, but not the death of others. He offered himself for us to build his kingdom upon his death, giving us life. Earthly kings demand tax and tribute Jesus' kingdom was, is built because he paid it all. And not just does he pay it all, he offers it all. John 3.16, another passage that should not be so trite that we lose its power. For God so loved the world that he gave. We've talked about John 3.16. For God in this manner loved the world that he gave his only son. What did he give him for? To die. So that whoever believes in him should not perish. Why why should they not perish? Because Christ perished for them, but instead rather have eternal life. God loved, so he gave. Earthly kings get rich off of their people. They not only demand payment and tax and tribute, they are often wealthy 
while their people are poor and starving. Just look to North Korea to see this uh, and many other nations today. Christ became poor so that we might be rich. Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. I'm so glad that the gift and grace of God is lavished on us, not from his riches, but according to his riches. Earthly kings languish in sin. They use people for their own pleasure. Christ became sin so that we might become righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our king doesn't first seek what he can get, but what he can give. Make no mistake, though, while salvation is free, it will cost you everything. We enter by faith alone, by simple trust and repentance, but it will cost you everything. How can it be free and cost me everything? Because entrance into that king is free, but all allegiances to other kingdoms must be cut. This doesn't mean you can't be an American citizen. It means your hope is not here. It means your delight is not here. It means your treasure is not here. It means your future is not here. 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from this world. Why was Daniel so secure in the face of death and kings? Because he was well aware of who the sovereign of his allegiance was. And that his kingdom was an eternal kingdom. His hope was not in Babylon or in Judah, but in God, and so must ours be. He could have had so many different reactions. Panic, fear, terror. Is there safety here? Do I belong here? What am I doing here? What am I going to do in captivity? Am I up to the task that's before me? Why has God allowed me to be here at all? Daniel chose to answer all of these questions according to the rule and reign and sovereignty of God because God is in control and kings rise and fall, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but he is the eternal sovereign. And this is what allowed him that measured calm that we see over and over and over from him. It's probably a point I'm going to beat to death through this series, but I see it so much on social media. I hate social media. Christians believing that their obstinate defiance will be their greatest witness in a contrary world. But Daniel's obstinate defiance is not his greatest witness. It is always his faithful obedience. I think it's worth noting as well that he doesn't go through any of this alone. Yes, we know. God's with him. That's not what I mean here. Certainly God was with him, but so was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The truth of the matter is, we need kingdom people around us in this life while we await the fullness of the kingdom that is yet to come. Which is why Hebrews 10.25 tells us that we're not to neglect meeting together, but to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
We first live faithfully when our security is in the kingdom of Christ. Secondly, we understand that culture has always been opposed. Culture's always been opposed. I think there was a time in American history where Christianity was not only looked on acceptably, but favorably. And now as that changes, as it's no longer favorably looked upon, we tend to think that, that something has changed. But nothing's changed. People have always been opposed. And primarily, what the world has always been opposed to is the declaration that there is one true God. It is, we see this throughout the book of Daniel. The, the, the wise men here, they talk of the gods. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't bow before the king, they get thrown in a fire. When Daniel will not pray only to the king, he gets thrown in a lion's den. The world will tolerate our God amongst its pantheon of gods. It will tolerate the idea of one God among many, but what it will never tolerate is the idea that there is one true God and there is one true way to access God. The world's even comfortable with the idea that there's one God, but but he's, he's, he's pretty much just schizophrenic and reveals himself differently to different people everywhere and however you get there gets to him. But Scripture is clear. There is one God and there is one way to God. And that is Jesus Christ. The, the, the culture in America and the culture in Babylon is comfortable with a panoply of worship and a pantheon of gods. It is Daniel and his friends' refusal to worship any other god that gets them in trouble. Alistair Begg points out that, that what often comes to mind in the West when we think of the word religion is tolerance. But how far can we go down that road? How far down the road of culture can we go like Daniel who said, I went so far, but but this was the point where I could not go any further. I think John Stott is helpful here. Listen to what he says. He says, it may be of some help if we distinguish between three kinds of tolerance. The first may be called legal tolerance, which ensures that every minority's religious and political rights are adequately protected in law. Is this type of tolerance good? I'm asking the question, not Stott. I would say yes, and so does Stott. He says this is obviously right. Another kind of social tolerance, which encourage, another kind is social tolerance which encourages respect for all persons, whatever views they may hold, and seeks to understand and appreciate their position. This, too, is a virtue which Christians wish to cultivate. Remember, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, and it's not formed by fighting. But what about intellectual tolerance, which is the third kind? To cultivate a mind so broad that it can tolerate every opinion without ever detecting anything in it to reject is not a virtue. It is the vice of the feeble-minded. It can degenerate into unprincipled confusion of truth with error and goodness with evil. 
Christians who believe that truth and goodness have been revealed in Christ cannot possibly come to terms with it. Daniel doesn't reject everything. He accepts their language, their history, and certainly uh, other things in the culture too, probably the way he dressed, what his house was like. But he rejected what required worship of anything other than the one true God. And it put him at odds with the culture. It always has and it always will. Do you know God's word well enough to know whether culture is to be accepted or rejected? I hear from Christians regularly, not new Christians, people who have been Christians for a long time, who say, I've never read all the way through the Bible. I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to guilt you. I'm here to call you to remedy that. Read through God's word faithfully and regularly so that you can know what, what it is in the culture that we can accept or must reject. We can't, we can't cower from the culture, nor can we conform to it. We must stand faithfully. We must not be offensive or rude. We must simply stand faithfully and truly upon God's word. And lastly, and quickly, press into worship. Press into worship. Notice that, that, uh, that Daniel chapter 2 is filled with worship from Daniel as he gives God, gives God glory and praise and credit and honor. It was not so amongst all of the people. Listen to Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, exile, there we sat and also wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we, we hung our lyres, we hung our harps. From there, our captors asked us about the words of a song, and our tormentors asked joyfully, saying, sing for us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing a song of Yahweh in a foreign land? They hung up their hearts. Daniel's worship is his greatest witness. When life is hard, he can be calm and he knows who is in control because worship leads us to knowing who is in control. He knows God's kingdom is worth more than the world's kingdoms and that worthiness is the heart of worship. Worship is declaring what is worthy in our lives. Apparently, in the life of, lives of much of the Israelites, what was worthy was not God who was deserving of praise, but their homeland. And when they weren't in their homeland, all they could do is hang up their harps and no longer sing. When dreams are revealed, Daniel worships with praise. When prayer is forbidden, he worships through prayer. Not all of God's people were so faithful. In troubling and conflicted times, we must not remove ourselves from worship, but we must press into worship together. Daniel gave worship to God before kings, declaring who was worthy. And we must worship in the church and in the world. When we fear for our lives and feel insecure, we worship. When the future is uncertain, we worship. When it's popular to worship, we worship. When it's forbidden to worship, we worship. When we fear for our lives or when we feel secure, we worship. When a virus seemingly threatens our lives, we worship. In success or failure in this life, we worship. In all things, we worship. 
Because the one whom we worship is God of an eternal kingdom that crushes every other kingdom, that cannot be defeated, that will go on forever, and because he is the one worthy of worship. Lord, you and you alone are worthy of worship. There are no gods but you. And nothing is deserving of our affection but you alone. Lord, may we find our security in your kingdom. May we not fear when the culture is contrary because it always has been. And may we just press into worship and witness all the more, knowing that our security has never been in this life, but has always been in your kingdom. Let us find our peace and hope there for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. With that in mind, would you stand and let's worship? And I'm going to call a bit of an audible to the worship team. We're just going to sing the doxology the way it's traditionally sung together, just with our voices. Here we go. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here. 